This morning, as we continue our series on perspectives on the Christmas story, we come to God's viewpoint on the birth of Christ. This is the third of four Advent messages focused on encouraging a sense of expectation and spiritual preparation for Christmas morning. And boy, haven't we done that these past weeks with these precious songs that we've been singing. My part in this series ends next week, next Lord's Day, with the uh, historical message on worshiping the right king, followed by Pastor Tim's message on Christmas Day. And I pray you're looking forward to that. Yeah. We um, began this series by looking at Isaiah's prophetic perspective that told of the coming Christ child upon whom the government of the world would ultimately rest. He would be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The establishment of his rule would be permanent and upheld zealously with perfect justice, righteousness, and peace. And then we looked at the Apostle John's perspective on the Incarnation from John chapter 1, verse 1 and verse 14. And it was there that he proclaimed, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and what? Truth. Then we also surveyed what would be the perspective of the archangel Gabriel. His testimony spanned the annunciation, the birth, the life, the death, the resurrection, and the final victory of the Lord Jesus. But this morning is very special because it's a communion Sunday. A time when we remember the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross when he took the sins of the world upon himself and he offered forgiveness for those who would believe. When we connect the crucifixion with his birth, we are compelled to look at a larger picture, are we not? Obviously, without a birth, there would not be a crucifixion. And without that, there would not be a resurrection. And with that, all hope would, for a positive future would be lost. We are obliged to consider an even larger perspective when we consider his ascension. There seated at the right hand of God, he, can, he continues making intercession for us. And that has a present day impact. If you could even just for a short period of time, just imagine in your mind that there is God on his throne and there is the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is holding his arms out and he says, Father, these belong to us. These belong to us. And then again, we are persuaded to look at an even larger picture when we consider the promise of his physical return in glory, in fulfillment of where we began with Isaiah's prophecy. You see, all of that leads us to conclude that there is an overarching plan at work that has as its heart the overwhelming, endless love of God. And for that reason, this morning, the theme that we have for our verse 
is the familiar John 3.16. If you have your Bibles open, it might be profitable to turn there with me. John 3, verse 16. Many of you know this by heart. You see it at a lot of the athletic events where they hang the signs out. And it says John 3.16. I love that. It reminds me of my roots. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Often in, in, in so many uh, visitations to this verse, I have heard the emphasis being put on the, the last half of it, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And I was thinking, what about the first half of this verse? Look at it. For God so loved the world. And the emphasis here is on that little two-letter word, so. Can you imagine that verse without it? For God loved the world. How about this? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. You see, the, the revelation of the, of, of the intensity here, the intense love of God for the world, it goes back a long, long way. And to get a perspective, perspective on this, we need to, to turn uh, to the purpose of God in creation itself. When we look back, don't do this, I'll do it for you, but I just want to remind you that when we turn back to Genesis 1.1, I think it's here somewhere. We see every aspect of God's creative love and power in the words that are re repeated over and over several, seven times. And God saw that it was good. He said in, in verse 4, and God saw that the light was good. He said in verse 10, and God saw, talking about the dry land and the earth and the gathering of the waters, and God saw that it was good. In verse 12, and God saw that it was good. In verse 18, and God saw that it was good. It goes on in, in verse 21, when, uh, when God created all of the, 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 the sea animals and every living creature that moves in the waters, and God saw that it was good. And God made the beasts of the earth and their kind and cattle of their kind. And God saw that it was good. And finally, the last verse of Genesis 1 is, And God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. The Hebrew tov meov. Very good. And he's asked yourself, okay, good. Good for what? Good for the habitation of man by whom God created out of his desire to have a love relationship. Because it comes right, the creation of man comes right on the heels of what we just read. It was good. It was good for the habitation by man. That's why we were created in his, in his image. In the beginning, there was perfect compatibility between innocent man and holy God. Adam was perfectly matched to God with intellect by which he and we could relate to God. 
with emotion by which uh, he and we can return God's love to him for this precious gift. And also a will by which he and we could walk in proper relationship to God. It was all designed to work perfectly on the foundation of God's love. That design has never changed, my friends. When one of the scribes asked Jesus, what is the greatest commandment uh, foremost of all? And he replied, the Lord our God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind and with all of your strength. Man did not honor that plan. Right after the creation account, Adam broke that perfect relationship with God by disobedience. That plunged the entire world, the product of his loins from that time on, into a continuing state of condemnation. Man fell out of favor with God because of sin. But that did not change. We have to, we have to know this. It did not change the intensity or the longevity of God's love. Almost immediately in Genesis chapter 3, he began to repair that broken relationship with the prediction of a coming Messiah, the seed of a woman. And from that point on, all through the Old Testament, thousands of years, God continually tried to get his people back to that original plan of loving him back for his unfathomable love for man and for us. Oh, he instructed, he exhorted, he coaxed, he encouraged through countless events and situations and people, even a whole nation, to return to the greatest love plan that has ever been designed. And he did it through the expression of his own majesty, his availability, his desire as a communicating God, a delivering God, a covenant-making God, a jealous God, a compassionate God, a faithful God, and if nothing else, an exclusive God. Does that impress you this morning? He used prophets, priests, kings, Miracles, dreams, missionaries, and the faithful men and women like Daniel, of whom nothing has ever been written about him poorly. And it was all written to point the way back to his original love plan. He used judgment. He used dispersion. He used exile, disease. He used natural disasters. He used warnings. He used enemy nations, occupations, and even 400 years of nothing, silence in between the testaments to convince his people to return to the original love plan. None of it worked for very long. Finally, at a time and a place convenient for his purposes, God re-energized his love plan <laughs> in a little town named Bethlehem. 2,000 years ago, God expressed his deep, enduring love for his people by bringing a Savior into the world that whoever believed in him, as John said, would not perish but have eternal life. It was and is the final act in the restoration of the God-man relationship. It was and is the implementation of a final covenant, a blood covenant paid for by the blood of Jesus, his own dear son. He came into the world through low beginnings. 
He didn't come roaring out of heaven with legions of warring angels armed to the teeth. He didn't come with thunder and, thunder and trumpets intent on annihilation. He came peacefully, humbly, born in an animal shed with a feeding trough for his crib. Didn't matter. Nothing could stop the Son of God growing up sinless. Nothing could stop the power of his message, the healing in his hands, the love of very God in his eyes, the passion of his words, or the life-changing teaching of truth that still resounds throughout the world today. His enemies tried to suppress, tried to nullify, tried to quash him. Satan tried to deceive him and manipulate him. The pious religious Jews publicly humiliated him and the Romans laughed at him and ultimately crucified him. But we know that the grave could not hold him, don't we? See, this is the son of God raised up by the power of the Holy Spirit three days later, that same power that gives eternal life to those who believe in him. And one might ask, well, three days, what, what took so long? I mean, why did it, if it's, if it's that powerful, why did it take three days? I'll tell you why. It was to prove that he wasn't just sleeping. He wasn't just swooning. He was really dead. And just as the immense power of God raised him back to life, so can it resurrect the spiritually dead even now. This is unstoppable divine energy at work, even now. And 40 days after his resurrection, Jesus ascended back into heaven to sit at the right hand of the Father. His physical work on earth was finished for a time, but his spiritual work was to continue through his disciples and the Holy Spirit who would inaugurate his church, that which we enjoy today, to continue this life-giving message. It is that way even today, and it will continue by the power of God until the physical return of Christ to finish the world, the work of taking back the world and establishing what? The invisibility of God's plan forever. That plan of love, that love plan. And the point of all of this, my friends, is to remind us that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever would believe in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Christmas is a deeply religious season for most of the world. People everywhere celebrate the birth of Christ by giving thanks to God for sending a savior, that through him, we have the opportunity to have so many upside down things in our life turned right side up again. The celebration of Christmas is a strong reminder of the beginning of a unique life, the life of Jesus that assures us that by God's unfailing love, we can be born again, forgiven, restored to a right standing with him, filled with the spirit and empowered to live an overcoming life. That's a very different life, isn't it? Yes. It's a reminder that Jesus is God's gift of peace to the world. 
When the angel appeared to the shepherds in the field announcing the news of the Savior's birth in the city of David, he was accompanied by a multitude of the heavenly host who were praising God. And what were they saying? Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among men with whom he is well pleased. This was a heavenly announcement that from that point on, a condition of tranquility and serenity and harmony with God was available to every heart in every corner of the world through faith in Christ. God so loved the world. You know, paradoxically, Christmas is also a reminder of God's humility The scripture says the son of God humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. It may seem strange to mention this as it relates to Christmas, but on closer examination and expansion, we can see how appropriate it is. Why? Because Christ was born to die for us. He came to us as a complete package. We cannot separate the birth and the death because there are really only two reasons why we have the Christ experience to begin with. One, that he would reveal the glory of God to the world in his birth and in his life. And two, that he would so reveal the intensity of his love for the world that he would humble himself to death in order to save it. He left his home in heaven for us. He laid aside his rights and privileges for us. He became a servant for us. What did he say? I did not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. He died for us. He gave his life so we could experience God's love and forgiveness. So that we could be restored to him and by grace, receive his gift of peace in our hearts. So as we come to the cross, the Lord's table, let's reflect on the amazing peace, that overarching love plan of God and and the deep humility of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. I'm going to pray, and as I do, if the worship team would come up and the servers would come up, and we will partake of the, of the table, of the, this, this, this incredible physical act of worshiping the Lord. And as they do this, um, maybe you'll just come down and take the elements and, and go back around to your seats, and then we will partake together. Our Father, it is our, it is our privilege to come into your presence and thank you for the great and wonderful blessing that we have in Christ. Your thoughtfulness thoughtfulness is, is beyond comprehension for us. And there are so many things about you and, and your goodness to us which are incomprehensible. But this morning, we rest in the peace and the humility of our God, not dismissing your glory and the glory of your precious Son who revealed you to the world. And we thank you for it in his precious name. Amen.